the National Archives podcast series, The Battle of Towton, a 550-year retrospective, presented by Dr. James Ross. Um, thank you all for coming. The Battle of Towton, which was fought 550 years ago, um, 550 years and two days ago, um, was perhaps, to quote A.A. Gill, the largest, longest, bloodiest and most murderous battle ever fought in Britain. But it's not perhaps as famous as it should be. Um, largely, I think, because unlike, say, Agincourt or Bosworth, Shakespeare didn't spend um, as much time in the play, uh, on his plays on it. But I think it should be better known for, for various reasons. Firstly, like Bosworth, it establishes a new English dynasty on the throne. The fact it wasn't a dynasty that lasted very long is perhaps one reason why it's not known. It was um, not just a dynastic conflict, it ended um, a political argument that had been going for at least 10 years and has perhaps far more of a, a, a deeper, more moral dimension than, is sometimes given, uh, than it's given credit for. And lastly, if we do ever need a reminder of just how unpleasant a civil war is, this battle really does emphasize that. I'm going to um, outline the battle, um, its background, the course of it, and to some extent what happened afterwards. And I'm going to try and do so with particular reference to the National Archives documents um, that, that helped to illustrate it. Um, I will also be drawing on other sources and on the work um, of historians who I will happily acknowledge um, at the end. I'll start, however, with the political background. 1449 to 1454 was probably the most politically disastrous five-year span in English history. In 1449 to 50, Normandy, which had been English since 1417, was lost to the resurgent French armies. 1451 to 3, Gascony, which had been English since 1154, was lost to the French. 1450, one of the biggest popular rebellions in the Middle Ages, known as Cade's Revolt, resulted in the execution of a number of leading ministers and humiliated the English crown. Royal finances, um, long in, in real trouble, reached a new low. Royal income had slumped to £24,000 a year, while de debts had reached £372,000 a year bit of a difference there. And in August 1453, Henry VI, King of England, um, had a mental collapse. He was incapable of ruling for more than a year. Precise cause of Henry's illness is a little unclear. Um, catatonic schizophrenia is favoured by some, depressive stupor by others. But what's clear is he was mentally unresponsive, he recognised nobody, understood nothing, and after he recovered, he could not recall what had happened during that period. Given how personal a monarchy England is at this time, this is absolutely crucial. During Henry VI's collapse, Richard Plantagenet, Duke of York, was made protector of the realm. York was the most powerful of the English nobility at this stage, and he had been the leading critic of Henry VI's ministers since 1450, um, and since the disasters in France. It's interesting that with Henry VI's collapse, he had been such an incapable king. Um, his collapse weirdly improved matters. Richard Plantagenet is made protector of the realm. Um, most of the nobility and, and the politically important classes rally behind the duke. And the position uh, and the governance of the realm um, actually um, improves briefly. 
you can see here um, a warrant issued by the Protectorate Council, um, which um, included a number of leading magnates. And particularly here, it's worth noting the um, signatures not only of R. York for Richard of York, but R. Salisbury for Richard Neville, Earl of Salisbury, and R. Warwick for Richard Neville, Earl of Warwick. The two Nevilles were um, at this stage closely associated with York and were to become um, the, his closest allies um, for the next few years. It's also interesting looking at this, this warrant that's issued. It's a relatively routine administrative document. It's simply about the replacing the um, English ambassador to the papal court. But you start seeing an element of collective responsibility for this. Um, whoever is present at the council meeting where this is agreed are signing this document. Um, so you've got York, Salisbury, Warwick. It's also lords like Beaumont and Cromwell the Earl of Worcester, and there are some churchmen on there as well. So you're starting to see collective responsibility. And briefly, this improves um, matters. However, Henry VI um, recovered the ability to walk and talk at around Christmas 1454 after 17 months in a stupor. Whether he fully recovered his mental faculties, I think, may be doubted. But York's protectorate is immediately ended, and he's left out in the cold, and his political opponents and those of his Neville allies were back in power. Situation deteriorated rapidly, and on the 22nd of May, 1455, York and the Nevilles attacked Henry VI's forces at St Albans, targeting and killing their political opponents while swearing loyalty to the king himself. It's normally, dated, or normally described as the first battle of the Wars of the Roses. There is, slightly unusually, a detailed account of this battle in the Stoner Letters, or in the collection known as the Stoner Letters, um, now in the National Archives series C-47. Um, it's a very detailed account of the battle, admittedly written with something of a Yorkist bias, but I'm just going to read you a section or part of, um, part of it to, to give you a flavour of, of the description of the battle. Um, Henry VI's troops have, have fortified the town and are holding it very strongly. And Lord, Lord Clifford kept strongly the barriers that the said Duke of York might not in any wise, with all the power that he had, enter nor break into the town. But the Earl of Warwick, knowing thereof, took and gathered his men together and ferociously, I think ferociously, broke in by the garden sides between the sign of the quay and the sign of the checker in Howell Street. So basically by the gardens through the pub. And the men have got in, and anon, as soon as they were in the town, suddenly they, they blew up trumpets and set with a cry, a great shout and a great voice, a Warwick, a Warwick, a Warwick. And, into that, and unto that time, the Duke of York might never have entered into the town. But they with strong hand kept it and mightily fought together. And anon, forthwith after the breaking in, they set upon them manfully. And as lords were name, of, of name were slain, the Lord Clifford, the Duke of Somerset, and the Earl of Northumberland. So quite a vivid account of, the, of, of, of the, the fighting, but actually it's relatively small scale. There are not many men killed. It is a targeting of political opponents, and York is temporarily very successful. York is made protector again um, in the autumn of 1455, but given the king is not in a stupor, it is a real problem. Um, he could only really be protector if the king wasn't fit to rule. And with the king walking and talking, with the hostility of the queen and of some other lords, York's authority was undermined. Um, his second protectorate is dissolved, 
and um, an uneasy state prevails for, for the next three years. The king, dominated by his wife, rules from the Midlands, um, particularly Coventry, where royal support was strongest. There are occasional efforts by neutral peers and churchmen to bridge the political divide. Um, this particular uh, famous occasion of the Love Day in 1458, where the two sides sort of process hand in hand through, through London, but it doesn't actually um, lead to a real reconciliation. In 1459, Margaret, who's been pushing this for a while, brings charges, Margaret of Anjou, the Queen, um, brings charges against the Duke of York, and this initiated the outbreak of a genuine civil war. Three battles follow in quick succession. The first one is Blore Heath in 1459, which results in a Yorkist victory, though it's not a decisive battle. Ludford Bridge, um, the Yorkist troops are betrayed by some on their own side, and the Yorkist lords are forced to flee. York himself goes to Ireland, um, the Earl of Warwick, York's eldest son, the Earl of March, and, Salis and the Earls of Salisbury um, flee to Calais. But from Calais, those lords um, regain their, their mental strength, if you like, land again in England, raise forces, and at the Battle of Northampton in 1460, the Yorkists win um, a decisive victory, capturing Henry VI. Despite the temporary Yorkist political ascendancy, Richard of York decides he's going to try and find a different solution to the whole problem. On the 10th of October 1460, in Parliament, he lays claim to the throne. Now, this is a simplified um, family tree of the English royal house at this date. The key thing to note is that York is descended from um, Lionel Duke of Clarence, who is the elder brother of John of Gaunt, from whom the Lancastrian kings are descended. It's an arguable claim. It has gone through the female line, through Philippa, daughter of Lionel, Duke of Clarence, but it is a perfectly plausible claim. In, if you were doing this through lands inheritance, the lands would have gone to Richard, Duke of York, rather than through the Lancastrian line. It's a good claim. It's, it's arguable, but it's a good claim. I think that's, that's key to remember. This is um, the record as it was written down in Parliament. Richard of York made the claim in Parliament, and it also um, has illustrated, uh, it, it summarizes the arguments that were made in Parliament to and against his claim. The Parliament rolls in, in the National Archives series C65 are a good record of what happens in Parliament. They're not word for word, but it, this section, which is York's initial claim, emphasizes um, his descent, uh, York, Richard of York's descent. Um, this is virtually a um, who begat, X begat Y begat Z sort of biblical descent, but um, it does emphasize his descent from the elder brother of John of Gaunt. When the Lords understandably asked why Richard of York had not made his claim known before this date, York answered that he had abstained from a time for seeking and pursuing his right and title for reasons not unknown to the entire realm, i.e. it would have caused civil war. But, and this is a rather nice quote, for although right for a time rests and is silence, yet it does not rot nor shall it perish. So he's basically saying his right cannot be extinguished even if he has not claimed it before now. Despite, I think, probably having the better of the arguments in Parliament, the political reality, however, is a little bit different. York's claim to the throne was a step too far. York, even York's allies, the Nevilles, would not support him in this. It's 
too much of a clean break. It will inevitably mean there can be no political reconciliation, which the, York, the rest of the Yorkist Lords are still hoping up to a point that they can do. So a compromise was reached in Parliament, whereby Henry VI was allowed to keep the throne for life, but Richard and his heirs, Richard of York and his heirs, would inherit, thereby disinheriting Henry's young son, Edward. This is clearly unworkable. The compromise lasted only three months, and at Sandal Castle in Wakefield on the 30th December 1460, against a strong Lancastrian force, Richard of York gave battle in vain and was killed along with his second son Edmund and his ally, Richard Neville, Earl of Salisbury. Their heads were impaled on the gates of the city of York. Sandals are rather sad and very fragmentary ruin these days, but this, um, so this picture um, was drawn in 1561 as part of a survey um, of the Northern Castles. It's now under the National Archives reference, MPC 197. I think it shows rather better the really strong fortifications and the impressive nature of the castle. And it was from here that Richard really rather foolishly, Richard got rather foolishly charged out to take on a superior force. He would be much better um, uh, advised to have stayed within the walls of the castle. But that mistake was his last. Two further, um, battles, two further battles follow in short order. The victorious Lancastrians advanced south and defeated the Earl of Warwick at St Albans on the 17th of February 1461. Warwick was um, very proud of his military reputation, but um, his, his battle here was, was particularly unsuccessful. They were, however, however unable to take London. Um, London took one look at the advancing army um, of particularly unruly um, northern troops and said, there's no way we're letting this into our city. Um, the Lancastrians were forced to retreat back to the north. At the same date, in Wales, Richard of York's eldest son, Edward, defeated the leading Welsh Lancastrian, Jasper Tudor, Earl of Pembroke, at the Battle of Mortimer's Cross on the 3rd of February. Edward returns to London and declares himself king. The compromise in Parliament in the autumn of 1460, whereby Henry VI was to remain king for life, has been, um, has been put to one side. Uh, Henry VI was actually recaptured by his wife and um, the Lancastrians at, at um, the Battle of St Albans, so is back with them. He is said to have repudiated the compromise. Edward fi finds it um, perfectly acceptable to declare himself king. It is, by this stage, inevitable. So that's the background to, to Towton. I just want to talk a little bit about the composition of the armies, how they were raised, and some of the motivations <coughs> of the participants before I go on to, to outline the course of the battle itself. The two sides at Towton. Are, um, on the Lancastrian side, Henry VI is in nominal command, but um, he is not at Towton. He has been captured at several other battles, and um, as one historian put it, there is no record of him wielding anything more lethal than a prayer book. He's a very weak king. He is not personally participating in the fighting. And at Towton, both he, Queen Margaret, and their eight-year-old son are not at the battlefield. They remain at the, the, the Lancastrian base at York. The army is instead led by the Duke of Somerset with um, other noblemen like the Duke of Exeter and the Earls of Northumberland, Devon, and Wiltshire. It's a very northern flavour to the army. Um, it's especially drawn from the Duchy of Lancaster estates, which of course are in crown hands, and on the huge military following of the Percy Earls of Northumberland. It's undoubtedly a larger army than the Yorkists are able to, to muster. 
contemporary estimates um, are wildly exaggerated. One chronicle says quarter of a million men. Um, but there aren't logistical sources to really to really help, so we are, to some extent, guessing. It's most likely to be in the region of 30,000 men. On the Yorkist side, Edward IV, in contrast to Henry VI, leads in person. But he has able deputies in the persons of the, uh, the Earl of Warwick and of Lord Falkenberg. The Duke of Norfolk, another major magnate, um, had a, was bringing a substantial force from East Anglia, but was actually somewhere away on the day of the Battle at Towton and arrived mid-afternoon. There's a strong southern flavour to uh, the Yorkist army. It's based on Yorkist estates in the southern Midlands and in the Welsh marches, on aristocratic supporters in East Anglia, and particularly and interestingly on popular support in London and the southeast. It is smaller than the Lancastrians, perhaps numbering 20 to 25,000 men. I'll come back to the numbers in a, in a little bit. What we also see with, um, at this period is a real polarisation between north and south. Um, it's really clear in the propaganda, and it's in some ways surprising. The Nevilles and the House of York owned a lot of estates in the north, but the north is really very strongly Lancastrian, and from Westminster... Um, Edward IV and, and Warwick before him really play on southern fears of northern violence. Um, this is a, um, a picture of the, the close rolls um, from March 1461. But it's actually a written record of what is an oral, meant to be an oral proclamation which is sent out to um, all the sheriffs in southern England to be read out in public. It's very much an appeal to popular support. But um, I will give you, give you a little section of this as a flavour of the, of the anti-Northern propaganda that is coming through. Various named Lancastrian lords, moved and stirred by the spirit of the devil, in warlike guise, contrary unto God and the common will of all this land. They've committed treasons and robberies and horribly and abominably oppressing wives, widows, maidens and women of religion, slaying and maiming liegemen, in such detestable cruelness as has not been heard done among Saracens and Turks to Christian men. So, northerners are worse than, than, than infidels and heathens, according to this proclamation. I'd like to talk a little bit about the composition of the army. The, the popular appeal I've just read out would have brought in archers and billmen, and these are the men on both, uh, most of the men on both sides at Towton. But the key troops, however, are the heavily armoured professional men-at-arms. Now, these are either the magnates, the knights and the squires themselves, because these are the only people who can actually afford armour, the full armour, uh, as you can see illustrated on the screen, or members of their household and their personal retinue, because, again, the magnates will pay for um, their, their close-knit bodyguards, if you like, their households, to be fully armoured. To give you an example of that, there's um, a document from the National Archive series E154, which is various inventories held among the Exchequer, dated from towards the end of Henry VI's reign, and it lists items of armour being given to named men. So to take the top one, um, Henry or Harry Ty is given a pair of brigandines, and that's the body armour, so that's the front and the back, a sallet, which is a helmet, and a gosset of mail, which is um, a mail shirt to go underneath the plate armour. So you can see a, um, a really heavily armoured man being, being um, or a man being given heavy armour here, and you can see numerous people um, receiving similar 
um, amounts of armour. And it's these men that really make the difference at Towton. They're not entirely invulnerable to archer fire, but certainly from a distance, it's very difficult to kill an armoured man like this. And it's the clash of the two groups of men-at-arms that really decides most of the battles in the Wars of the Roses, not least because the commanders are among them. And once you've, if you ki kill a commander, um, you can you either break the opponent's um, will to fight or, as at Bosworth, when you kill the king, um, the battle is over. There's no need to keep, to keep fighting. These, some of these men are part of the household, but there's also um, the element of retaining or retainers um, among the nobility. Me, uh, men, usually squires or knights, were retained um, by the nobility to fight for them whenever asked, and they received a substantial payment in return. To give you one example of this um, from the National Archives series E327, which is um, ancient deeds, um, there's an example here for one of the Earl of Warwick's retainers. And by this indenture, Robert Warcop of Westmoreland, Esquire, undertook to come horse armed and arrayed whenever the Earl of Warwick calls upon him against all men except the king. Interestingly, the um, retaining fee, so that the fee that he's meant to be paid is actually left blank here, um, indicating either this is a draft or it wasn't ever um, fully uh, agreed and, and carried out. But the great magnates of the Wars of the Roses, so Warwick himself, the Percys, um, and, and others, all can call upon dozens of these men, each of whom would bring a few archers or billmen to, um, to a muster. Combined with their own tenants and households, you, um, most leading noblemen can raise four-figure um, forces. You are talking several thousand men for the great magnates like um, Norfolk or uh, Warwick or the Earl of Northumberland. Um, I was at a conference at the weekend, and there was quite a lot of discussion about the size of the armies at Towton. But I think if you look at the number of um, magnates who are at these battles and tot up roughly the number of troops they can bring, you really can get an army the size of 50,000 men. Now, the reason there's discussion is because that is so much bigger than any other battle in the Wars of the Roses. Um, and just to give you a comparison, the City of London at this time is 40,000 um, population. So you're probably looking at something slightly bigger than the City of London on the march. But... It's, it is feasible from, from who is there. It's feasible because of the decisive nature of the clash, and everybody knows it's going to be a decisive clash. And from the length of time they have to recruit, it's not a hurried campaign. People have been recruiting for some time. So I do think at this point you can get an army that big, but it is unique as far as late medieval or even medieval English armies are concerned. I want to also just emphasise at this date, at uh, this point, the um, the the difference in percep between perception and reality of medieval warfare. A lot of the contemporary manuscripts, that's um, a contemporary picture of the Battle of Barnet, um, ten years later. They show warfare in a very idealised manner. It's never raining. It's never muddy. Casualties are minimal. There's I think one on the screen there, um, and there's plenty of chivalric jousting between the great individuals. I don't think it's a fairly obvious point to say that the reality of medieval warfare is rather different. It was often raining, if it was England after all. It was usually muddy underfoot, churned up by thousands of men. Casualties could often be heavy. And rather than nice, um, idealised chivalric jousting, the armies were usually dismounted and were hacking away at each other with really unpleasant weapons in a frenzy. To give you one example of this, and I'll come back to this a bit later, there's a mass burial pit at Towton 
um, which contains the skeletons of 43 individuals. Um, and I've put a couple up on the screen here to show the horrific wounds that can be inflicted um, by weapons at this date. You've got skulls with, with holes in them. That's um, something like a war hammer that's just gone straight into the side of the skull. Or the one towards the bottom, which um, has clearly had um, a diagonal blow across the face by something very heavy and very sharp, like a poleaxe. Really not pleasant. There's more detail on, on all of this um, on the website of the University of Bradford who undertook the archaeological excavations at Towton. Lastly, I wanted to have a little bit of a, a look at the motivations of participants because to modernise it appears extraordinary that so many Englishmen would risk their lives fighting over whether one man or another was on the English throne. But that is a modern perception and we need to be very careful with this. It's really important for contemporaries who is king. The disasters of 1459 to, to 53, sorry, 1449 to 53, had tarnished the Lancastrian dynasty, but Henry VI had been king for 40 years, and it takes a lot to dissolve the, the bonds of allegiance that you build up during that time. The Yorkists, for the last 10 years, had been um, putting forward a really convincing critique of Lancastrian kingship, how much they'd made a mess of pretty much everything, and gets a lot of popular support, but equally to suddenly turn around and say, I'm king is a really big leap for people to, to, to take. So a lot of men find themselves really torn between legitimacy and usurpation, but also of good governance and bad governance. There's a lot more to this than simply who is on the throne. I think such moral questions matter as much then, or matter as much then as they do now. If we can see hundreds of thousands of people marching you know, on something like the Iraq war, it's just as important on a moral dimension um, for people at the time uh, in 1461 as to you know, what the government is doing. I think there's also a religious element to this. If the wrong man is on the throne of England, then this is going to be offensive to God um, and will lead to disaster um, for the realm. So it does make a bit of a difference as to who, you know, on the religious side, as to who is on the throne. Second thing, loyalty to your lord, to your friends, to your neighbours, to your city. All of these are strong ties and you will be pulled in um, by everybody in your area marching off to fight. And I think there's a very, your loyalty to these kind of groups also makes a big difference. More negatively, if you desert your friends or your city or your king in, in, in the hour of need, this can involve social or financial ruin or even be construed as treason. So there's a lot of other ties that will pull people into the fighting. And I mentioned a little while ago, north and south. By the campaign of 1461, the country had really become very polarised. There was a lot of alienation between um, and, and fear between the two sides. Um, and this it's not quite a foreign war, if you see what I mean, but people are perceiving it as fighting against something other than yourself, despite the fact these are all Englishmen. It, it is a defence of your half of England, if you like. So I think all of these reasons um, tie in together, and I think also we underestimate the sophistication of medieval political culture at our peril. It is a genuinely sophisticated society, and they will think in deep terms, or many of them will think in deep terms. Lastly, before I discuss the battle itself, I wanted to have a quick discussion about the, the documentary sources. The best sources for late medieval battles, sometimes the only sources for late medieval battles, are the chronicles. Now... <laughs> 
These are written by different people in different places for different reasons, um, but they often, as I say, contain virtually the only description of battle. They're often not by eyewitnesses. Sometimes they might talk to eyewitnesses. They're often contradictory. They are always unreliable in terms of numbers, but they contain a more or less detailed descriptions of the battles of the Wars of the Roses. Other sources can supplement our knowledge. Occasional letters survived. I, I mentioned the one relating to St the First Battle of St Albans amongst the Stoner letters. These can be insightful, but they can also be quite official, more, more like official propaganda, such as the one by George Neville, Bishop of Exeter, after Towton. So you have to treat them with a certain amount of care. And lastly, administrative sources, almost exclusively held by the National Archives, can show some of the political background, some of the organisation of the armies, and the odd human story. You get things like compensation payments, so you can sometimes fill in gaps there. There are also non-documentary sources, particularly with Towton archi um, archaeological excavations, which add to our knowledge. I'm no ar um, archaeologist, so I'm not going to talk too much about them. However, what I just want to say now is what, what follows is, a, is, I think, a composite narrative based on all of these sources um, and also drawing on the work of, of, of those historians who produced studies of the battle. So, Edward IV is proclaimed king on the 4th of March and immediately preparations are um, made by the Yorkists to march north. They, Edward cannot realistically, or cannot really be the king until he has defeated the Lancastrians, so it's immediate. Orders were sent out, including um, one for th three feathers from both wings of every goose in 20 southern English counties were to be plucked and sent to the Tower of London, there to be made into arrow flights. Um, a command the following year in 1462 expected to realise over one million arrows by a similar um, command. Troops were raised by the supporters of both sides. Magnates disappeared back towards their regions to raise troops from their, from their areas and royal commissions of array extended the recruitment to all areas of southern England and Wales. The delay between the Second Battle of St Albans on the 17th of February and Towton on the 31st of March allowed the raising of unusually large armies, as I mentioned before. The Lancastrians were also raising troops in the north, but we know a little bit less about their activities because they were not in control of the Westminster bureaucracy, which is largely the records that have survived. So the Lancastrians, having been... Um, refused entry to London after Second St Albans had retreated north and based themselves in York. Declared king on the 4th of March, Edward wasted no time. Elements of the army were on the move by the 7th of March and the new king left London on the 13th. Supporters joined along the route. Money and food was also collected as they went. By the 17th of March, Edward was in Cambridge and he then went to Nottingham and by the 27th of March, he'd reached Pontefract in Yorkshire where there's a strong castle. It's 180 miles in 16 days, and that's actually an extremely fast pace for a medieval army, especially one encumbered by supply wagons, as it must have been. Edward, in largely hostile territory, was eager to give battle. Um, the Lancastrians, better supplied and on home turf, s were quite keen to delay the battle for a bit to soften up their opponents. And this becomes clear at the first skirmish. A couple of miles north of Pontefract um, was Ferry Bridge, which you can see on this little map right at the bottom of the screen. Um, and Ferry Bridge is a crossing over the River Eyre. As such, it was an obvious move for the Lancastrians to dismantle the bridge. 
um, to slow the Yorkist advance, though they couldn't stop it completely. There was a ford a few miles downstream at Castleford. But the speed of the Yorkist advance surprised the Lancastrians, who had not finished destroying the bridge. Um, a Yorkist force under Lord Fitzwalter drove them off on the evening of the 27th of March. But in a swift reversal of fortune, there was a substantial Lancastrian force nearby, and it attacked um, as it was getting dark and retook the bridge, and Lord Fitzwalter was killed. The next morning, the Yorkists sent two forces to retake the bridge again. One went via Castleford, which um, is just off this map here, um, and to go, to, to go in a flanking movement. The other, under the Earl of Warwick, attacked the Lancastrian force at Ferry Bridge itself. The plan worked, and after a sharp fight, um, Lord Clifford, who'd been commanding the Lancastrian force, um, fled and to be caught and killed along with most of his men. The Yorkists then regrouped their scattered forces and advanced a few miles, probably camping overnight at Sherburne. The Lancastrians were probably five miles away at Tadcaster. Both reached the battlefield very early in the morning on the 29th of March. On the screen are images, um, a, a plan of the battlefield and a picture of it as it now is. It hasn't changed a great deal. It was agricultural land then and is agricultural land now. The only addition is, the addition, um, is that of the tarmac on the road. You can't quite see on the picture, but it's more clear on the map. There's a very steep slope down to the stream or the, or the river called the Cock Beck here, um, and it anchors one side of the battlefield on the, the Lancastrian right and the Yorkist left. That, would, that will come back into play a little bit later. Two sides drew up on a north-south north alignment between the two roads or tracks. Each was divided up in a very traditional structure into three divisions or battles, and each led by a noble commander. The Lancastrians by the Dukes of Somerset and Exeter and the Earl of Northumberland, the Yorkists by the Earl of Warwick, his cousin Lord Falkenberg, and the King himself. An archery duel began the battle early in the morning, but the weather had turned for the worst. Um, snow and sleet fell throughout the battle. But crucially, although the Lancastrians had slightly the better position on, on the higher ground, the wind was blowing into their faces, and this proved a great advantage to the Yorkists. The arrows fired by the Lancastrians weren't reaching their targets. The arrows fired by the Yorkists were, um, and began to cause heavy casualties. Archers will have a certain amount of um, padding, occasionally a little bit of armour, but they are very vulnerable to other archers, and you have two huge groups of archers on either side, so the slaughter would have been um, quite heavy quite quickly. There would also have been, because it's such a large army, plenty of people who weren't really experienced in fighting, probably without much more than an agricultural implement or two, and therefore even more vulnerable to the cloth yard shafts of the, of the English archers. Losing the archery duel, um, the Lancastrians had no alternative but to advance. Um, the two armies met and the hand-to-hand -hand fighting um, began. Edwards, the king, distinguished himself in the battle both as a commander and in the combat itself. And I think it's key to emphasise his, his personal bravery um, in contrast to Henry VI, who wasn't even there. Um, just after the battle, um, George Neville, um, the Archbishop of Exeter, wrote, How manfully our king, my brother and my uncle, bore themselves in the battle, first fighting like common soldiers, 
then commanding, encouraging and rallying their squadrons like the greatest captains. Fresh Yorkist troops arrived early in the afternoon under the Duke of Norfolk, um, probably a substantial contingent, may even have been as many as four or 5,000 men, and attacked the right of the Lancastrian line. Despite the severe um, pressure, the Lancastrians held on, helped by their superior numbers. But at some stage in the later afternoon, having had the worst of the battle, these numbers probably had balanced out, and at some point the Lancastrian line broke. We don't know why. Um, it may have been a commander falling, it may just have been the constant pressure, but uh, that allowed the massacre to begin. Partly caused by the arrival of the Duke of Norfolk um, onto the Lancastrian left, um, the battle had wheeled round nearly 90 degrees. So the Lancastrians are now with their back to the steep slope and the river. This meant the escape routes for them were nearly non-existent. They could either go down the, the steep, slippery slope known now as Bloody Meadow and across the overflowing stream, or north if they could get away to a bridge over the River Wharf, now known for good reason as the Bridge of Bodies. The names, I think, reflect the outcomes. There were always some mounted troops on the battlefield designed to discourage desertion from your own side, but also to hunt down fleeing opponents after the lines had broken. These would immediately um, have overtaken many of the fugitives. No quarter was shown. For, um, we know that 42 Lancastrian knights who had been captured um, were executed on Edward's orders. That comes from Gregory's Chronicle. And interesting, the 42 mentioned in the Chronicle, number suspiciously close to the 43 found in the mass grave a little north of the battlefield, um, actually now at Towton Hall. Those in the grave um, had suffered numerous injuries, especially around the head. They had lit quite literally been beaten to death in a really very savage and unpleasant um, killing. The other, one or two other examples we know of on medieval battlefields where prisoners are killed, there's usually some element of military necessity, particularly Henry V at, at Agincourt with the advance of another French line. But in this case, there is no excuse, and it just shows the brutality of the battle. Um, it's worth also, I think, quoting George Neville again, who a few days later said, the dead bodies were seen to cover an area six miles long by three broad. It is pretty unpleasant out there. We had a, a bit of a discussion earlier about the, the numbers in the armies. There's also, a, it's difficult being precise about the number of casualties. Again, to quote George Neville, he is very quotable. George Neville described the battle saying that it began with the rising of the sun and lasted until the 10th hour of the night. So great was the pertinacity and boldness of the men who never heeded the possibility of a miserable death. That shows the length of the battle and the slaughter that would have happened during it, let alone um, the massacre afterwards. He added that in this battle, 11 lords of the enemy fell, including the Earl of Devon, the Earl of Northumberland, Lord Clifford and Lord Neville. And from what we hear from persons worthy of confidence, some 28,000 people perished on one side or the other. This number of 28,000 is repeated several times within sources a few days later. King Edward himself, wrote, writing to his mother, stated that Lancastrian casualties comprised 20,000 of that estimate. 
I'm always slightly reluctant to disagree with historical sources when they agree with each other, but 28,000 is a very, very high figure, and many modern historians have been somewhat sceptical of it. It may come from the normal medieval exaggeration of any figure of men. Normally they double it and add a few. Um, the figure of 28,000 is said to have come from the heralds whose job it was to count the bodies on the field of battle, but there probably aren't a huge number of heralds and faced with a, a huge number of um, casualties, they may have started to guess. One chronicler suggests 9,000 Lancastrian casualties. Um, historians have certainly found this a bit more plausible. And the other problem with 28,000 is if there are 50,000 combatants, it is unheard of to have more than 50% of the combatants killed at the end of it. So I am a little bit sceptical of that figure. But to put it into context, the British on the first day of the Battle of the Somme lost 19,240 dead and 35,500 wounded. Um, if the figure is anything like that at Towton, 19,000, um, it may be a little bit less. It is still an astonishing figure and one that happens in hand-to-hand -hand combat, not necessarily from machine guns at a distance. It is almost certainly the, the bloodiest battle on English soil. The other statistic I will give you, I say I'm not sure I'm believing 28,000, but that would be more than 1% of the English population at the time, which is somewhere in the region of 2.5 million. Um, e even if it's somewhat less than that, it is a terrifying figure. We don't know quite. Um, the other problem with this is that later reburials by Richard III have disturbed the archaeological evidence of the grave pits. Um, but they have identified um, one or two, and there's a new project starting the summer of 2011 to investigate those that they have found, which may help to shed more light on um, from the archaeological side, though I suspect even then the numbers are going to be something that will be debated for a little while. I'm just going to mention now one or two sort of administrative sources in the aftermath which shed a little bit of light on, on what happens later, and indeed on the battle itself. Um, the fine rolls in the National Archives Series 260 are um, a normal administrative source. Whenever someone who holds land of the Crown, a tenant in chief, dies, an order is sent out to investigate um, the extent of his land holdings. Those who hold land from the Crown are the aristocratic classes, the knights and the esquires. But the first, um, ent the first role for Edward IV's reign basically reads like a casualty list from uh, of the aristocrats at Towton. I'll pick up one example here, which is um, an order to the Escheater in Norfolk to investigate the lands and tenements which were held by John Radcliffe of Attleborough, who is also Lord Fitzwalter. Interestingly as well, normally these orders were sent out as soon as, um, or fairly soon after the deaths are known of any tenant-in-chief. All of these come from May and June, so two or three months after the battlefield, after the battle. I think, unusually, even in the midst of a civil war, this is one of the very few periods when the Westminster bureaucracy is really struggling to keep up. It's, it's more chaotic than it usually is, um, and it does indicate the, the dislocation that is happening all around um, the country. And on a slightly more human um, example, this is from the, the warrants for issue in F E404. It's a normal government administrative source. If 
money is sent out, if money is uh, ordered out of the exchequer, a warrant like this is written. But in this case, um, Edward IV, about in July, orders um, authorizes compensation to be paid to Richard Langport, who's clerk of the Privy Council. Um, and it mentions his service at uh, the field at Sherborne. Now, Sherborne is uh, a nearby large town and is the medi often the medi uses the medieval name for the Battle of Towton. But um, Richard Langport, in our said service, he left in the field at Sherborne 20 marks and a book priced at five marks. When I first read this, I thought, gosh, he really ought to be <laughs> grateful he's alive <laughs> rather, than, rather than making claim, and, uh, claim for um, compensation for a few minor losses. But nonetheless, he did, and Edward IV authorised it. The carnage at Towton um, established a new dynasty. Although Henry VI, Margaret of Anjou, and um, their son Edward escaped, Edward IV's victory made him de facto king. The political nation, or the majority of the political nation, were forced to accept the decisive victory. The resumption of civil war nine years later um, was, uh, was as a result of the breakdown of the alliance between Edward and uh, the Earl of Warwick and the ambition of, su uh, of such men as Edward's brother, George, Duke of Clarence. Had all these men stayed united, um, I think the Lancastrian claim probably wouldn't have come back to haunt Edward. But um, after some serious political turmoil, um, Edward IV proves again he is an able battlefield commander. He wins two battles at Barnet and at Tewkesbury in 1471, which exterminate all of his enemies. Um, the Lancastrian Edward, Prince of Wales, the Earl of Warwick, most of the Lancastrian nobility, and a few days after the battle um, at Tewkesbury, Henry VI is quietly murdered in the tower. Yorkist, Yorkist claims that he died of pure displeasure and melancholy, being little believed then or now. Edward lived until 1483, so thoroughly enjoying being king that his vices of wine, women and food probably caused him to suffer a stroke at the early age of 40. His two young sons were imprisoned by their uncle, Edward's brother, Richard of Gloucester, who seized the throne and were popularly believed to have been murdered by him in one of the most notorious, if ultimately unprovable, crimes in English history. Richard, of course, was defeated and killed at the Battle of Bosworth in 1485, and the Yorkist dynasty, born on a battlefield 24 years earlier, was extinguished. While he did enjoy his pleasures, Edward left the monarchy a lot stronger than he inherited it, and while his rule was very personal in nature, aspects of it were copied by the early Tudors, and he's perhaps a more able and important king than he's sometimes given credit for. Thank you. This event was recorded live on the 31st of March 2011 at the National Archives, Kew. This podcast is copyright to the National Archives. All rights reserved. <laughs>